welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we come before you um, excited to open up your word. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that even now as we talk about your spirit, we pray you'd send your spirit, uh, both to give new birth and to give new revival. Lord, we pray that you would open blind eyes, We pray that you would open deaf ears. We pray, Lord, that you would give new spiritual taste buds that we may taste your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would soften hearts. We pray, as the old prayer book says, that you would order our unruly affections and desires. Make us love the things you command and desire the things that you promise. We pray, Lord, that you would break up all kinds of stony ground. Make our hearts good soil for your word this morning. We pray that you would plant your gospel word deep within us and that there would be a great harvest of righteousness. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit. And spirit, we pray that you would blow wherever you wish. We ask that you would do it here among us today. We thank you so much for that. We pray for all the churches in the valley here, Lord, that you would be at work in them, that you would send your spirit upon them this morning. We pray for all the churches in the nations, especially ones where um, your son's name is not known or loved. We pray especially for the Muslim world as it's at the beginning of Ramadan. We pray, Lord, that you'd bring great conversions to Jesus among them. We believe that you are able we pray that you do it, and all God's people say, amen. So um, this is a great passage to connect with what David was just talking about. But on the night that Jesus uh, was betrayed, the night before he died on the cross, he assured his disciples that it was actually better for them that he go away physically so that the gift of the Spirit would come to them. And that's a shocking statement, and that's kind of generated this series. So for seven weeks, we're going to look at how having the gift of the Spirit is better than what the disciples had in their life with Jesus. And uh, right before his ascension, he told his disciples, he told them to wait. He told them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Spirit before they went anywhere. And there's a seven-week period there between Easter and Pentecost, and that's the same seven weeks we're going to be looking at the gift of the Spirit. And so leading up to Pentecost Sunday, we're going to be looking at that. This morning, we're going to look at the gift of the Spirit in the sense that we're going to look at the gift of the Spirit's work of regeneration. As you look, saw in the passage there, it talked about being born again, um, Wayne Grudem defines regeneration this way, that regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. And we're going to be in John 3. It would also be good to put a finger in, um, in Ephesians 2. And uh, this, this gospel of John starts off with a whole string of conversations where Jesus is having conversations with a bunch of different types of people. There's Nathaniel and the Samaritan woman and the Roman official and the, the man that's paralyzed by the pool. And in each one of these conversations, they learn a little something different about his person and work. This morning, he's speaking to Nicodemus. You can see that in verse 1. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus is coming by night. Nicodemus has a lot to lose by following Jesus, so he's doing a little investigation here at night. We see that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a respected leader, and also that he was a ruler of the Jews. And so he wants to make sure, is Jesus 
just a teacher? Is Jesus more than a teacher? Could Jesus be the long-awaited Messiah? And during this time, there were lots of so-called messiahs coming along, and they would lead a rebellion, and they would get killed. And Nicodemus cannot afford to just follow someone like that. He wants to make sure, is this really the one sent from God? And as he talks with Nicodemus, we're going to see four truths about the new birth. We're going to see that the new birth is necessary. We're going to see that the new birth is solely by the Spirit. We're going to see that the new birth is mysterious but powerful, and we're going to see that the new birth is by the gospel. So let's look at the first. The new birth is necessary. Guys, the new birth is so necessary for every human that he, he cuts off Nicodemus with any chit-chat, right? So Nicodemus starts with something, and the way that Jesus kind of dives in here, it could almost seem rude. You know, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. And what does Jesus say in response? Truly I say to you, you must be born again. Um, If anyone is not born again, they cannot receive the kingdom of God. Jesus' abruptness here shows how necessary the new birth is. He's not going to spend a lot of time talking about anything else because he's saying, Nicodemus, this is what you need. And this is what every single human being needs. They all need to be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he can't enter the kingdom or see it without being born again. Look at verse 3. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. And then 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Now, this would have been shocking to Nicodemus because Nicodemus thinks he sees. He says, we've seen your signs. I'm here to assess you, whether you're the Messiah. He thinks he sees. Jesus is like, you can't see anything unless you're born of God, unless you're born again. Also, Nicodemus thinks he's already in the kingdom. Nicodemus thinks he's a gatekeeper of the kingdom, right? He's checking Jesus' credentials to see if Jesus is in the kingdom, right? And and Jesus says, shockingly, you're not in the kingdom until you're born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus responds in a shock way. Look at verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Kind of confused about what Jesus is talking about here. But the main purpose of what he's saying there is, how can something so radical be needed to enter the kingdom of God? I mean, that sounds entirely radical. Why would somebody need to be born all over again? And guys, this is a difference between the gospel and man-made religions. Man-made religions are things that you can sign up for, that you can join, that you can go, well, that sounds good to me. I think I'll sign up. But the gospel, guys, is something you have to be born into. You have to be born into this. And I don't mean you have to be born into a Christian family. You have to be spiritually born into this. This is something God has to do. And to see why that's the case, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, right? So God created human beings in the beginning wonderfully alive to him. People weren't like, like we are. Adam and Eve, when they were first created, they were wonderfully alive to God. They were excited about him. They treasured him. They, they waited for him. They were excited when he would arrive in the garden to walk among them. They depended on him. They loved him. They enjoyed him. And they were told by God if they would keep his one generous command, which is, you can eat of any tree here, just not that one, but any other tree is totally yours. Very generous command. But he told them if they disobeyed that, what would happen? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then sometime later, um, Adam, for reasons we don't fully understand, chose to disobey God. And just like God had promised, he died that day. You say he died that day. He didn't die physically. The physical death was a manifestation of that too. What did he die? He died spiritually. Both Adam and Eve. And we see that, right? When God comes into the, into the garden after that spiritual death, what happens? They run and hide from him. 
Before, they would have been super excited. It's like some of you guys have really hyper dogs in your backyard, and you go back there, and they're jumping all over you and slobbering all over you. That's the way Adam and Eve were before. They died spiritually, and now they're running, and they're hiding. And ever since then, every person born from their line, every one of them, including us, have inherited that deadness to God. Totally dead to God. Not like, uh, you know, Miracle Max from uh, Princess Bride. Remember what he said? Oh, your friend's just mostly dead. We're not talking about mostly dead, guys. We're talking about completely dead, right? Until we're born again. Look at verse 6. It says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I told you you have to be born again. Before we're born again, we all have that inner spiritual deadness to God. Have you guys ever felt that? You guys remember what that was like, if you're a believer now, to feel that inner spiritual deadness to God? Take a look at um, Ephesians 2.1. Paul describes it in all of its grisliness here in Ephesians uh, 2.1. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That, that deadness to God, guys, means that we naturally had no desire for God, the true God, um, Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And you're thinking like, that can't be true. You know, human beings are relentlessly religious, right? They're always seeking after God. I'm talking about the, we could seek a God, one that suits us, but we'll never seek the God, our creator, on our own. We are constantly on the run from him. C.S. Lewis said that amiable agnostics talk cheerfully of man's search for God. But from my experience, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. Right? We don't search for the cat. We're not looking for God. We don't pursue him in any intention to find him. We don't want God. We don't want God until God pursues us. Until the Holy Spirit wonderfully invades our hearts and gives us new life. Take a look at the rest of Ephesians 2, verse 4. What does verse 4 start with? But... The most beautiful buts of the Bible. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And listen to the reason. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He makes us alive through the Holy Spirit for what purpose? Look at verse 7. To show us his love for all the ages. It's going to take him all the coming ages forever to show us all the love he has for us. He's caused you to be born again so that later he can spend eternity showing you his love. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. It's going to take him that long. And guys, this is a crazy kind of love that God has. So unlike human love. Take a look at verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 again. It's super grim. Is there anything in this that would make him love us? Read it. Was there anything about you that make him love you? Dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, the course of the world, so you're following what the world wants to do. Following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, not a nice description. Among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh and carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. What in that caused God to love you? What in that was like, oh, wow, that's perfect for me. Uh, guys, imagine a couple goes to an orphanage, and they're looking for a kid to adopt. 
and they find a kid like this. Can you imagine the wife? Oh, honey, look, it's a child of wrath. He'll be perfect. He's perfect for our little family, right? No, but that is exactly the person God chooses. He chooses the child of wrath. God's love is so unlike our love. God, God's love is attracted not to our niceness, but to our need. You realize that? He's got a kind of love. All of us in normal human love, we're attracted to niceness. He's attracted to our need. He says, I will go after that one. Guys, the passage says he's rich in mercy and love. He loves us with a great love. And so God is drawing. He's drawn to choose people who have no desire for him, who are totally dead to him, and give them new desires and make them wonderfully alive to him all of a sudden. That's the new birth. And every single person needs that. Whether you're a moral, kind of respectful, I like Jesus type, like Nicodemus, or you're an immoral, cursing him, like the soldiers at the end of the book, right? Everyone needs the new birth because everyone's a sinner and starts off spiritually dead. The new birth is necessary. Second, the new birth is solely the work of the Spirit. Love this. Jesus actually calls the new birth being born of the Spirit. Just like you're born of a woman, woman might be, maybe you're born of Sally, or born of Lisa, or born of Anne. If you're a Christian, you were born of the Spirit. This Holy Spirit birthed you into a new life. And he says that we're born of water in the Spirit. Look at verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You might wonder, what that, what is that? I mean, what's the water part? You know, I get the Spirit part, but born of water in the Spirit? Well, if you look at commentaries on this, there's like 1,300 options, okay, for this. Baptism, all kinds of different things. But we have a hint here of what this water is. Whatever it is, it's something Nicodemus should have known, okay? We see that in verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And what does Jesus say? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Whatever the answer to this water and the Spirit thing is, it must be in the Old Testament because this is what he should have known. This is the book he should have known. And so if you look through the Old Testament, you look for water and spirit and something about the new birth, where do you land? Ezekiel 36. Take a look at it. Ezekiel 36, 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you that you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols I'll cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that beautiful? That was a promise a couple hundred years before Jesus came that God was going to do something with water spiritually. It's going to cleanse you. You know, don't you want to be clean? Don't you have things that you even came this morning, sinful burdens that you have? You want to be clean? Well, the Spirit has cleansed us with, with Jesus' blood. Um, he says he'll give them not only cleanse them, but give them a new heart. You know, we need new hearts. We need new insides, right? John Piper said that new birth is the creation of new desires, not just new duties. You like that? New delights, not just new deeds. New treasures, not just new tasks. Change this from the inside out. This doesn't just give us a law code and say, do this. I don't care that you don't want to. You better do a good job or we'll see how you do, right? No. He, he cleanses us. He forgives us permanently. And then he puts a different insight in us that delights in the things God delights in and loves the things he promises. How cool is that? And not only that, there's more, right? Because it says that he'll put his spirit within them. This renovation that occurs on the inside of us is because there is a new occupant right? There is a new being, a new person living inside of you, and he's doing this renovation. He moves in, the Holy Spirit, and then he goes, okay, none of this will do. Tear that out. Tear this out. Let's repaint that. I mean, he's inside, and you guys are undergoing it. For some of you, that's a very uncomfortable process. 
You're like, I thought I was fine already, right? And then you're seeing as the Spirit comes in, he's showing you all kinds of areas that, that he wants to renovate. The new birth, guys, is solely the work of the Spirit. I think it's so important that we realize this, guys. You can't birth yourself. That should be obvious. Did you birth yourself the first time? Did you have anything to do with it? Was it your idea? No, none of it was your idea, right? And the second time, you can't do it either because it's even more of a miracle. If you look at John 1.13, he says that we were born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor even the will of man, but of God. And so as Nicodemus asked this question, can an old man be born again? The answer is yes, you can be born a second time, even if you're old. The Spirit does it. Third, the Spirit's work is mysterious and yet powerful. I love this. So this is in verse 8, right? Jesus wants to illustrate this work of the Holy Spirit and how it's a mysterious and powerful work. And he, and he, says, he uses this metaphor of wind, and it's a perfect metaphor because actually in both the Greek and the Hebrew, wind and spirit are the same word. And so it's a really interesting thing. Look at verse 8. He says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? This is how the Holy Spirit works. Um, just as wind blows wherever it wishes and you cannot control it, the Holy Spirit gives new life to people and you cannot control him. You can't control him, guys. God is sovereign. The Spirit is sovereign. He blows wherever he wishes. He gives new life wherever he wants. What implication does that have for us together as we minister together? One, one thing would be missionary confidence. Guys, if we believe that the Spirit is sovereign and he blows wherever he wishes, then we can know this. There are no closed countries. There are no closed people, right? There is no dictator that can put up a fence big enough to keep the Holy Spirit out of his country. And there's no person that can build up their defenses so high that the Spirit can't come in and just blow the whole thing down. Isn't that amazing? You guys have seen that. You guys have seen that in your own life. Some of you probably put up some pretty high defenses. And what do you do? Just went around it, right? And just gave you new life. Um, the wind blows where he wishes, right? One of our foreign missionaries, Lorian, she asked us to pray for uh, the, the Muslim world during Ramadan, so it starts now till June 4th, and she'd love for us to do that. The Holy Spirit has operated in really surprising, clearly supernatural ways amongst uh, Muslim people in dreams and visions and things like that, and that's a starter, right? And then somebody needs to share the gospel with them, but it opens them up to the gospel, and so we want to be praying for that um, during this next month. Another implication for ministry would be urgent prayer. As we all have people in our lives that aren't believers, that we would desperately want to come to Christ. And we need to pray because the Spirit can do. He can blow wherever he wishes. Some people go like, well, why should I pray if God is sovereign? I would ask you this. Why pray if he isn't? Okay? Like the fact that he's sovereign makes him the perfect person to ask. He blows wherever he wishes. Ask him to blow there. Right? Let me ask you this. I'm about to be mean to you. Okay, if every person that you prayed for their salvation this week, if God answered every one of those prayers today, how many people would get saved? Who would they be? Yeah. We need to work on that, right? That's something we need to think about. Because he blows where he wishes. He can do this. You know, think about that. And Okay, I prayed last week. How many people I pray for for their salvation? Who did I pray for? I need to remember that he blows where he wishes. We need to ask. We need to ask for the Spirit to do this. We can't just rely on our own ability to argue them in or be so nice that they're like, oh, now I want to be a Christian. No, the Spirit needs to come and give life. He also says about the Spirit, he says, that you hear the wind sound, 
but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. I love this because this is kind of the mysterious aspect of the Spirit's work, right? That the Spirit brings new birth in a way that's both mysterious and powerful like the wind. And you, you might not even know when exactly you got saved or how, but you know you are now. That happens, right? It happens like, I'm not really sure when I got saved, but I know I am now because his work's so obvious in my life. You might know, know when it happened, but it happened. Listen to this. This is great. So C.S. Lewis's account of when the Spirit gave him new birth is awesome. So he got the new birth on the way to the zoo, okay? And not only on the way to the zoo, he got new birth in a sidecar of his brother's motorcycle on the way to the zoo, that's a funny place for it to happen. I'm just imagining him. He didn't like to drive or anything, so he was riding in a... You know what sidecars are, right? You got the motorcycle and you got the side. So he's sitting in the sidecar on the way to the zoo. And this is what he says about his conversion. When we set out for the zoo, I did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> and I don't remember thinking about it on the way. <laughs> Trippy. The wind blows where it wishes. You're like, I didn't see him coming. And, but then he did this thing to me. Now, of course, C.S. Lewis had all kinds of conversations about the gospel with his friends, including his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. But when it came down to the spirit blowing, it was like, shocking. I was just going to the zoo. Now I'm a Christian. And you can see the evidence in his life, though, that that wind was powerful because he's obsessed with Jesus the rest of his life to great cost to himself. Guys, when the spirit gives new life, it's unexpected. And we find ourselves drawn irresistibly by God's grace. God's grace irresistibly drawing us. And then we go like, what happened? And a friend who, he called me up, and he, he was a kid riding along with me. When, I'm a horse vet, and so we were doing some calls, and he was riding along with me when he was like 13. Called me a few years later, and he's like, I got to talk to you. And I said, what happened? He goes, I'm a Christian now. And I'm like, really? And we got together, and we had lunch and stuff like that. And he's all, it's the weirdest thing. Just all of a sudden, I believed. And he goes, the other day I was going to, the ch- to church, and I was running late, and I was kind of frustrated. And I realized I didn't have my Bible, and I'd turn around and go back, and I was getting kind of irritated. And he's all, and then it dawned on me, I'm going to church. How did this happen? I have a Bible that I need. Isn't that a trip? That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that's the case for many of you. For some of you, it's like Lewis, this long road, and you don't know exactly on which mile this thing occurred. But for some of you, maybe you grew up in the church, and you can't remember a time when you didn't know the Lord, but you know he's alive in you now, which is a great gift, by the way. You know, sometimes we're like, well, do you know your exact date? And it's like, no, I don't. And it's like, well, I guess you're in. <laughs> It's a great gift if somebody's come to Christ and they don't know when, but they're alive to him now. We should celebrate that. That's a gift of the Spirit. And Lewis was just obsessed by him, and you are too if you're born again. The Spirit's work isn't just mysterious. It always has powerful, unmistakable effects. We live in Canyon Hills, which is just a couple miles from here, and because it's a canyon, the wind's insane. And, you know, we'll just come out and, like, the backyard's different than it was when we left it, you know? The chairs are everywhere. One time we were driving into our, our development, and there was, like, somebody's easy up out there in, like, the, out in the common areas. Like, where did this come from? Who knows who it was? It, the Spirit radically alters us. It's something he does. And, and Jesus is probably thinking here, when he talks about the wind, he's probably thinking of Ezekiel 37. Because he's already kind of mentioned Ezekiel 36. And when you talk about wind and new life and the Spirit... It makes total sense to go to Ezekiel 37. If you want to take a look at it, it's in Ezekiel 37, verse 1, where Ezekiel has this vision. He has a vision that the the Lord brought him by the hand and brought him out in the Spirit, 
of the Lord and set him in the valley of a bunch of dried bones, right? So there's all these bones. And he says these bones, it was like there was a battle and there was all kinds of, and he says these bones are very dry. And he said, um, and then the Lord said to Ezekiel, he said, son of man, can these bones live? And he, he said, I answered, oh Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you shall live and I will lay sinew on you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and I will cover you with skin and I'll put my breath in you and you shall be alive. And so then Ezekiel is in this vision, he's commanded by the Lord to prophesy. So it's prophesying what happens. This wind comes and bones start to clank together and they're like self-assembling, right, in this vision. And then it says sinew, so there's ligaments that start attaching on there and then there's muscle comes on and then skin and then, and then finally breath and he says, and then it was a great army. Guys, that's what the Spirit does. As the word proceeds from a servant of God, dry bones come to life by the Spirit of God. And guys, that's what evangelism is. You know, evangelism is you sharing the word of God and then the spirit of God causing dead. I mean, he's like, they were very dry. You know, they weren't even close to alive. They weren't even assembled, but they were dry too. And you, we all have people around us who are spiritually just a pile of dry bones. And we need God to bring life to them. What are some implications for ministry of this? If we believe that, this, that the new birth is solely the spirit's work, there's no point, guys, in trying to bring people to Christ by coercion or manipulation, or heavily emotional appeals, or deceit, or trying to have just the right music, or just the right lights, or just the right amount of fog, or just the right persuasive argument, or just the right poem at the end, or just the right story. It's not the way it works. You can pile dry bones. You can put all the nice lighting you want on them. You know, play them some music right? Nothing's going to happen, right? We are relying on the Spirit. And so I love what Paul says about this. He says, we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statements of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Solely the work of the Spirit. Lastly, the new birth is by the gospel. Now, guys, it doesn't appear from John 3 that Nicodemus was born again that night. It doesn't appear that he got the new birth that night talking to Jesus, which should be an encouragement to you all, right? He's talking to Jesus he doesn't undergo the new birth yet. That conversation just kind of seems to trail off. It's hard to even tell when their conversation's over. It just kind of trails off. Perhaps this morning you're like Nicodemus. Perhaps you've never really felt alive to God before. Like, I would be, I'd be surprised if there wasn't anybody here that was like that. That you have never felt alive to God. You might have vague positive feelings for Jesus, like Nicodemus did. You might be interested in spiritual things like Nicodemus. But you've never felt alive to God, right? What should you do? This is a point where some people might say, well, you know, get yourself born again. But we already heard that we don't birth ourselves, do we? What can we do? Do we just sit around and wait for the Spirit to blow? No. What can we do? Well, Jesus points Nicodemus to do something, and it's in verse 14. Check it out. This is so cool. It's more cool graphic imagery. We had wind, we had skeletons, right? We had water. And now verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's he, what's he telling Nicodemus to do? Tell him to look and believe. Isn't that cool? But you might say, okay, this is weird. So, especially in a Jewish context, but even now, Jesus is comparing himself to a snake. Now, this is unusual. If you guys heard this verse a bunch of times, you're like, no big deal. This is a big deal. Who's the snake? 
right? Satan's a snake, right, in the Bible. This is a very negative statement. What's Jesus talking about here, and how is he like a snake lifted up in the wilderness, and how could that help Nicodemus? Well, this comes from Numbers 21. Take a look at it. Numbers 21. This is great. I'll read it for you. Numbers 21, verse 4. There's this story about a snake in the wilderness. So the people, they've come out of Egypt. They're on the way to the promised land, and it says, the people became impatient on the way. So there's a lot of these, okay? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. We've heard this story before. Last week, actually. It was a different story, but it's the same thing. And the people said this, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That's a weird sentence. There's no food, and we hate the food you gave us. You know, like, very strange. And then what happened? The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people died. And the people came to Moses saying, we've sinned against the Lord, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he'll take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everybody that's bitten, when they see it, they shall live. And so Moses makes this bronze snake, he puts it on a pole and everybody that looks upon it lives. Isn't that great? These people were so sick, guys. They were so sick. They had so much venom in their bloodstream that, that this is all they could do. You know, if God had told them all to make their own bronze serpent, what would happen? They'd all be dead. They, just, they don't have the strength to do it. If God had told them to make a bronze serpent or touch it or rub it or hold it or dance around it, there's no hope, right? They're too sick to do anything but look. And so the Lord says, look at it. Just look. Just believe in it and you'll be healed, and you'll live. Look and live. That's all you need to do. Just believe and be saved. Isn't that awesome? So now you can see why Jesus would pick this image of himself, right? Look and live. Just believe and be saved. Guys, we have all sinned against God ourselves, haven't we? And we've all, guys, been bitten by the serpent in the process, right? And all of us have a spiritual death that will result in everlasting death. We have this venom within us, right? coursing through our veins. It will surely kill us. It'll kill us in this life and eternally. But Jesus, guys, the bronze serpent has been lifted up in the wilderness on the cross so that all we have to do is look at him and live. Isn't that amazing? You think, well, why did he pick serpent for, his, for himself? It's kind of an image of evil. That doesn't really make sense. It makes sense when you are reminded that on the cross, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus was covered with your sin, right? So that you can forever be covered with his righteousness. So what does he look like? Looks like a snake. Looks like a snake to God on there. He's got our sin on him as he's lifted up on the cross. He is the true serpent on the pole. And all we have to do is what? Look. You just have to look. And my favorite story about looking is the conversion of uh, Charles Spurgeon. It's a great story about just look to Jesus. Just look at him, right? So uh, Spurgeon, he was a teenager. He was on his way to church, and there was a snowstorm. And he couldn't get to the church he wanted to go to, so he turned into this little Methodist chapel. And there he finds about a dozen people that are gathered for worship. The minister doesn't show up because of the storm, because of the snow probably. So some poor guy in the congregation goes, well, you know, I guess I'll stand up and do it. That could happen to you someday, by the way. And and so he stands up, and he's just a, Spurgeon says he's like a, maybe a, a shoemaker or a tailor or something like that, a horse vet, who knows. And he stands up to preach. And Spurgeon recalls it this way. He says that the preacher was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. And realize, Spurgeon's not yet converted yet. He's not yet undergone the new birth. And so he's listening to this guy. And his text was this, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. 
And Spurgeon said, he didn't even pronounce the words right. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in the text. And the preacher began to say to Spurgeon this, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. It doesn't take much effort to look. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be a, the biggest fool in the world and yet still look. A man may not, doesn't even need to make a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then he said, look unto him. Look unto Jesus. And so Spurgeon starts to get excited. He thinks there's some comfort here in this text. And then the good man followed up this way. He starts talking to the congregation as if he's Jesus. And he says, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I've risen again. Look unto me. I've ascended. I'm seated at the right hand of God the Father. Oh, look unto me. Look unto me. And then the preacher looks at Spurgeon in the back and he goes, young man, you look miserable. And he goes, wow, I wasn't used to preachers like calling me out like that. And he said, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey my text. But if you obey at this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, young man, look to Jesus. And then Spurgeon said, and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have sung with the most enthusiastic of them, the precious blood of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. Spurgeon was given new life just by looking, looking at Jesus on the cross. And so was Nicodemus, by the way, because Nicodemus actually comes up again in John, in John 19. And the first time he came in the cloak of darkness, the next time he shows up there in, in chapter 19, he's with Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body of Jesus. That's risky to be associated with the Messiah that just got crucified. He asked for the body of Jesus that they might prepare it. And so here's Nicodemus who had a lot to lose and he doesn't care anymore. Why? Because he's born again. Why was he born again? He had seen the serpent on the pole, right? He had seen the crucifixion. He had seen Jesus and he was new. And if that's you this morning, really, one thing I can tell you for sure, if that's you this morning, that you're looking to Jesus for your eternal life, I can know one thing for sure. I can know the sovereign spirit has already blown into your heart and giving you the new birth and drawing you to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is not up to us to somehow reform ourselves, change ourselves, but that you come within us and give us new life. We thank you for all of us here who have the new birth. We just thank you so much. Total gift of grace. And Father, we pray for those among us that have not yet come to Jesus those whom you have not given the new birth to, we pray you do it even now, even before they get in their cars. Even, maybe as C.S. Lewis was converted in, the, on his brother's motorcycle on the way home. I didn't believe in Jesus when I left the church, and then when I got home, I did. Lord, give that new birth. You do it. We pray that you would do it. And we pray, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a mission that you yourself accomplish, that you've just called us to be faithful to share your word, and that you give the new birth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, in the Lord's Supper, we're going to look to Jesus again. Look to the serpent lifted up on the pole in the wilderness for our healing. And so this bread, it represents his body broken for you, um, the one that was crucified on the cross for your sin. And so as you take that bread, it's gluten-free. As you take that bread, remember Jesus' broken body for you. Remember him hanging on the cross, covered in your sin, treated as you deserve to be treated. 
And then as you take the cup, it represents the cleansing agent of the blood of Jesus, that he can cleanse any sin. I've said it before, I'll say it again, there's no sin in this room, even one recently committed or one long ago, that is stronger than that blood. His blood can remove every sin. And so if you're looking to Jesus today for your whole cure this morning, um, come forward during the next few songs and take um, the bread that reminds us of the one who died for you and celebrate the one who gave you life. Let's pray one more time and we'll start. Father, thank you for the savory food of your word that we can just open it and enjoy it and feed off of it. And we thank you that your spirit is the one who feeds us your word, and you've done that this morning. We thank you for that. And we thank you and ask you, please make this table also true spiritual food for us, that we will continue our journey in the wilderness, not grumbling against you, but thankful for the food you give every day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Look to Jesus and live. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.